Amen. Good morning. Glad you guys are here with us. Yep. Uh, if you will, please turn or tap in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be in Nehemiah for a minute here. While you're doing that, let me tell you the extent of my musical knowledge. I am very impressed with anybody that can do anything uh, musical. And the way that I grade singers, not really, again, understanding tone or skill or anything, is, is does the singer sometimes pull away from the microphone? I don't know why they don't just sing quieter, but they can't. They're so good, they've got to sing out here, and that's how they modulate their volume because the, the incredible passion that's coming out, that, that's all they can do. So I know Kelsey's real good. Thanks for doing what you do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Nehemiah, maybe she can explain later why that happens. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're, we're still in this series, and the reason that we're studying this guy, Nehemiah, is because it's the Bible, full stop. And the reason we're studying it now is because Nehemiah helps us to understand something of how we are supposed to be pursuing God's work through us in the world. He's an example. And he's an example we've talked about in the way that he deals with enemies. He's an example in the way that his heart, certainly his mind, certainly his convictions, but also his heart leads what he's going after and what he's doing. But I'll say another thing that he does well is he deals with some of the hurdles that come internally as well as hurdles that come externally to pursuing the work that God has for you. We did our series on work. We're doing Experiencing God, which is very focused on you observing where God's working around you and jumping into that work. But if you're going to do that, we've got to equip you. If we're going to equip you, we got to deal with external barriers, things that are outside you that want to stop you. But we also got to deal with internal barriers, stuff that's inside you, that's going to mess you up while you pursue the work that God has given you. The way I want to do that today, I want to think with you a little bit about your perspective on people. Perspective is an interesting thing. By its nature, it shifts. I was with my kids um, this past week. We were in Zion. We spent the whole time trying to get our kids like real excited about the nature that we were in and around. They're just younger. You know, they don't get it. Uh, I took my daughter. We were walking recently, and I'm always trying to capture and like maintain my awe of the mountains in our city. You know, like you always think you're going to just stop caring about them because you see them every day. But I don't want to do that. I want to keep feeling this joy about the beauty that's around me. And I try to do that by the way I, you know, force it on my children. And we were walking the dog and my middle kid, we're talking and I'm like, babe, aren't these mountains amazing? They're so huge. And she immediately, she's a very funny kid, she immediately was like, well, I don't know. They're only that big. <laughs> Matter of perspective. I thought Zion Canyon was cool. They thought the bunk beds and the pool at the place we were at were really cool just a matter of perspective. But biblically, we also know that there's kind of like a right and a wrong here. Like we're not just allowed to have whatever perspective we choose because there is a right perspective. Zion is cooler than bunk beds. They're wrong. I'm glad they're excited about bunk beds, but that is not correct. So you and I 
have to look at Nehemiah and see the proportions in his life, the perspective in his life that led him to have some of the conviction and take some of the actions that he took. That for us, I think, not having that perspective, not having those same proportions in our lives lead us, you know, honestly, to a, a pretty blasé Christianity. Maybe a, a less committed, certainly a less heroic, maybe, pursuit of God in his kingdom building. So the way I want to get at it is I want to think about the way that we see God and the way that we see people. I think our perspective on God is too small. And I think our perspective on people is too big. And I think everybody in here has got that problem. Some of us are going to deal with it more than others. I think everybody needs to hear it. So let's read in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to start at the very end of the very last verse when he says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. We talked about this. I think it's worth repeating. We don't usually have cupbearers in our age. A cupbearer, though, was a person whose job it was to oversee the wine for the king and his table. And it was not just an important position. It was an honorary position. It was a position that gave much honor and prestige to the person that had it. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes over all of the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And it says in the beginning of chapter 2, now in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, why is Nehemiah afraid? He's giving the cup to the king, and he's in that moment, instead of being this beautiful honorary person that would reflect honor on the king, he's sad. He's allowing the situation that's gone on back in Jerusalem, remember, the place that's God's place, because of the disobedience of God's people, he deported, God allowed his people to be deported out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem gets destroyed. Fast forward hundreds of years later, the people of Israel have been allowed to go back and they've rebuilt the temple, but they haven't built any walls around the city. Their city still stands in disgrace. Nehemiah weeps over the people. That was the heart that we talked about last week. But now he goes to stand before the king and he's afraid to let the king know what's going on. And he's afraid for a couple of different reasons. He's afraid because this isn't a job you can just leave. I don't know if you know what it's like to be, um, you know, we could say slave, but certainly a citizen in a kingdom with a king. You don't just go where you want and do what you want. You do what the king wants you to do. For him to show any displeasure at the incredibly high place that he's been given in this kingdom, it could have been real bad for old Nehemiah. He could have been accused by the king of treasonous thoughts for wanting to leave and been beheaded right then. He maybe, in a less severe sentence, would have been just reassigned. And it's his job to scrub the chamber pots or something. Like he gets some awful job instead of this very honorable job. The king had very real power over Nehemiah. And I want you to think about the king as a placeholder for the people around you who also have power over you. Now, we're Americans. There's very few that have, like, official authority over you. But you in your heart give people authority over you all the time. 
They have the ability to speak into your life and to either speak blessing or judgment in your life. You do that regularly. I do that regularly. If you want to try and build something for the kingdom, you're definitely going to need people around you to be either with you or against you in such a way that you can see it and overcome it. You need people around you to convert. Kingdom work at its core is not about building institutions or building buildings. It's not even about planting churches. Churches and planting churches is a means to the end of making disciples. We exist to carry forward what Christ told us to do, to go and make disciples. Man, we're fearful about people. We need them to change at their core level. You need them to serve and give. None of this takes place on its own. None of it's in a vacuum. None of us do this by ourselves. We need other people to get on board with what we're doing. We need them to encourage us and to grow. This morning, we're driving to church, and I'm trying to inform my children's expectations of what a church is and what it does. And I asked them, what are they hoping to get out of church today? When it was come around to my turn, I said, I'm hoping to be encouraged today. And the kids were like, but Dad, you're the pastor. Their idea being, I think, that it's my job to encourage you, that I'm supposed to come in with something, give it up, and go home depressed. And then I got a week to somehow like get my head back on straight and then come back the next day. No, this is the body of Christ. I have been encouraged by you today, and I intend to be encouraged throughout the rest of the day as God ministers gifts of the Holy Spirit through you to me, and hopefully through me to you. Of course. We absolutely need people, and we give people too much sometimes. Do you have in your head a sentence that just keeps recurring? Something that you had a hard time getting over. Somebody said something to you and you just keep thinking about it. Maybe it doesn't seem like you think about it too much because this is a a pretty regular pattern for you. You fixate on something that somebody has said. Maybe you start to get happy and then that old critique comes. You start to try something and that old judgment hits. You start to, to want something What goes on in your head? Who have you given power to, to be able to speak into you in a way that either encourages you without reason, makes you feel invincible and you you probably shouldn't feel that way, or just tears you down and breaks you up and you don't understand? Yeah, they were being real rude and critical, but why does that unmake you the way that it does? What is it like when you get that word from your dad, that compliment or that insult from your friend, that boss, that lover? Man, these words have power, and these people around us have gotten big. They've become kings and queens in our life. I want us today to to understand what Nehemiah understood so that though he was fearful around some of these people around him, he was able to keep going and he was able to honor God through it. Even when there was very real threats to his life from this guy, this king, he was able to keep going. He was able to continue doing kingdom work. But how? It's because he knew there was a bigger throne 
You know, we talked about this last week, but Nehemiah, after weeping, goes into a point of prayer and he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins with understanding again the real king and the real God in the situation. Yes, he's standing in the throne room and yes, he's before Artaxerxes who has this power of life and death over millions of people. But he's not the king. He's a king. He's not God. God is God. Nehemiah was after the time of Isaiah. He would have been able to read the writings of Isaiah. He would have remembered what happened when, the, when King Uzziah died and Isaiah goes into the temple and sees the God of the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 6, pretty, uh, I don't want to say popular, but, but it's one that you should read. You know, if Isaiah is intimidating, go read Isaiah 6. Let it kind of soak into you. But he walks into the throne room of the Lord and he sees God. God, who's the train of his robe, is the length of the train of his robe is supposed to show the honor that he has. And the train of his robe is so long that it fills the whole temple. These seraphim who would just break you if you ever even see them, they're flying around in the presence of God, crying out, calling out how holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Smoke is filling the whole place, representative of all kinds of stuff. We, there's like three sermons today I'm trying to get through. But <clears throat> then he speaks, and the throne room itself shakes to its foundations. The temple, which is the place where heaven meets earth, it's supposed to be this place of immovability. And yet when the Lord speaks, even the temple shakes. Nehemiah gets to see that God through that vision. Nehemiah knows about what God did through Nebuchadnezzar. Predecessor to the Median and the Persians are the Babylonians, the ones who God used to bring this punishment on the people of Israel. And he knows that God is a high God over even that high king. How does he know? Because he knows the story about Daniel revealing to the king what his dreams meant, that God was going to make him have the mind of a beast and live for seven years without any rationality, eating grass out in, the, out in the outdoors because they couldn't hold him in anymore. Why did God debase him like that? Interesting. Not because of the deportation. That's what God had him to do. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar did it because Yahweh told him to, but Yahweh was the one, the instrument behind that punishment towards the people of Israel. So he's not punishing Nebuchadnezzar for that. He punishes Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar stands out and looks over all of Babylon and he is proud of himself and claims himself to be God. Well, at that moment, that's when God strikes down pride. Interesting to note in the New Testament, if you go into the book of Acts, you have this uh, Herod guy, one of the kings, and there are a lot of them named Herod, so it's a little bit confusing sometimes. But Herod Agrippa, under the time after Christ, when you have the apostles leading out, and he kills James, he imprisons Peter. But God kills him when he doesn't give God the glory when the people of Tyre and Sidon say the voice of a God, um, God and not of a man. Interesting to note. Understanding yourself, understanding humility, understanding that there is a king and that king is on the throne and that you're not him. That's an essential piece of what allowed Nehemiah to have the, the bravery, the courage to continue with what scared him to death. He continues in chapter 2, verse 3. I said to the king, 
Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now he's out there. He said it. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Note. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he's asking for a leave of absence. He's saying there's something in my life that's more important and is a a more um, honorable thing for me to be doing than to be pouring wine into your cup, O king of kings. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me where I, uh, when I had given him a time. And then Nehemiah gets even bolder. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, meaning beyond the, over there where the people of Israel are, that they may pass, uh, let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So not only does he have the boldness to actually speak to the king and, and be allowed to go and to do what God has called him to do, but then he doubles down and he asks Nehemiah, or Nehemiah asks Artaxerxes to pay for it. Very impressive, very bold. Why? Because he's got a right perspective on this guy. He understands who this king is, that he is great, but not as great. That he is a lord over a lot of people, but he is not the Lord. God being bigger, Artaxerxes being smaller, Nehemiah is bold. But notice what what he does here. I think it's important because in our age, we kind of go too far one way and, and don't really understand why that's a bad thing. He didn't care too much about the king's word. And we all agree with that and we get excited about that. Because there's a little bit of a rebellious spirit to that making yourself big and making people, authorities that be, smaller. He didn't care too much about what the king said. But lest we go too far that direction, he also didn't care too little about what the king said. The Bible is very clear that kings have their authority on purpose and that we're not to disregard it. Don't let being an American, don't let being proud undercut the fact that real authority does exist outside of you. It's not just in the church. There is authority outside of you in the world that God has ordained. It says in Romans, and you can't throw Romans away. It says in Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now you look in uh, the Ukraine right now, and you can see that, yeah, governments are terrible sometimes. You probably don't have to look too far into the reign of Artaxerxes to find things that Nehemiah would say God hates. And yet somehow, hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul, he has the exact same attitude towards governing authorities that Paul has. He still sees God's hand behind these people. He says in verse 4 of Romans 13, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Careful. There's humility 
And then there's pride that looks like humility. Nehemiah is not just making King Artaxerxes lower. He's making himself lower too. Submitting to God and submitting to his ways, he then has the the boldness to go for what God's called him to. And how do we get that boldness? How do we get what Nehemiah understood? Nehemiah got it from looking at the Lord. But God in his kindness has given us in 1 Corinthians maybe a step further in understanding how we are to regard ourselves so that we have that kind of humility and that kind of boldness. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, This is how one should regard us, meaning himself, Paul, is the one who wrote this as a letter to a church in Corinth, Paul and his brothers who are with him, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Understand this and think about it closely. Think about it deeply. He's saying that he is a servant of Christ, steward of the mystery of God. He's got an identity that God has given him, not one that he's created. It's one that he's received. Think about that gospel verse religion card that David highlighted just moments ago. Then he says, it's... Require that I be found faithful, but with me it's a small thing that I should accept your judgment or the judgment of any human court. And again, us, our culture, we're like, yeah, Paul. No, who cares about what anybody else thinks as long as you are doing you? That sounds like us, doesn't it? My body, my choice. I do as I will. I'm not going to be submitted to your judgment of me. But what we do culturally is we then swing really far the other way and say, okay, then only thing that matters is what I judge about myself. That I decide who I am, that I make my own value decisions of what is good, what is bad, and how I'm measuring up to those standards. But the Bible doesn't do that either. Paul says, it doesn't matter to me what you think about me. I count it as a very small thing. In fact, I don't even judge myself. That's where we get something totally different. See, if you enslave yourself to your own judgments, you're just as enslaved as if you enslave yourself to social judgments. If you live in a context where authority figures around you are able to have a lot of influence over you, or if you live in a context where you're told that you're the only one who can make those decisions for you. Either way, you're enslaving yourself to standards. Standards that you're given by somebody else or standards that you're making for yourself. And you'll either succeed by those standards or fail by them. You'll either become a Pharisee or a tax collector. You need the gospel. You need another way. Because he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now we understand what he's saying by that because we understand something of the broader gospel. He's saying that he's not acquitted by doing anything right because he doesn't do things that are right. Even though he's a good steward of the mysteries of God. He's not acquitted because the Corinthians say he's a good pastor, and he's not acquitted because he decides that he's a good pastor. He's only acquitted by the mercy of God that then gives him forgiveness. Paul says this so clearly. It's one of the main themes of the book of Galatians when he says, 
Am I not seeking the approval of man or of God? If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You got to choose. It's one or the other. Read the book of Galatians carefully. You'll see that Peter failed in exactly this way. It's part of why Paul's harping on it. You can have one master, not two. Did you ever see the movie Encanto? Probably heard the song. We don't talk about... Don't talk? Okay, never mind. There's a song that says, we don't talk about Bruno, and I was going to say, and then you were going to say, Bruno, and I was going to say, don't talk about it, but you haven't seen it. You're probably lucky. The songs are very catchy. You wake up with them in your head. Not that they're a bad set of songs, just not the only thing you want to think about. But in that movie, there's a, a theme, and the theme to the movie is, am I accepted by my family or not? So all the people in this home, it's this home in Colombia in a magical land where in the home the people have magical gifts. They have these superpowers. And the family decides that they're going to serve the town around them. They're going to earn the miracle that they've received. And so the, the people in the family all have to use their gifts for other people. You understand what's happening? They're defining themselves by their ability to perform those gifts. And the lady who's the most helpful, all the rest of the gifts are kind of just non-existent. There's one where the lady can heal everybody. That's helpful. And the other one, the lady is super strong, and she does everything. The other people just make flowers and talk to animals. So the one girl who really can do whatever needs to be done in the town is this lady, uh, Louisa. Yeah, Louisa. And she sings a song about what it's like to be the one that everybody depends on and to be the one who has to perform in order to be loved. It's called surface pressure. And there's a one line in it that catches me every single time. And I don't know if Lin-Manuel Miranda did this on purpose or not. It would be a very gospel-like thing for him to do. So I don't know about him really, but this is what he says. Louisa is singing and she says, I move mountains, I move churches, and I glow because I know what my worth is. Her point being that she can move mountains, that she can pick up like the building of a church and move it and set it somewhere else. But by the end of the movie, you see that she's the most broken one. Because the only love that she gets is because of her strength. She says, I'm loved because I know what my worth is, and it's my strength. When her strength starts to fail, what's left? Maybe... She wouldn't be so crushed by the expectations of her family if she would hold churches and mountains with a little more weight. If she would see God's gospel, and again, you know, this is me preaching to Encanto, hello. Uh, But if she would see that the church isn't something lightly to be thrown wherever you want it to be. If instead it becomes more staid and stable, then your perspectives begin to change. You begin to see him. We talk about this gospel love, and I want you to see people as smaller, but I want you to see God as bigger. How are you going to do that? You're going to see Him. Now, if you're doing Experiencing God, I know that you're being really faithful about memorizing all of your verses, so great job. But if you have time, let me give you a couple of more to just meditate on. 
How is God going to get bigger to the point that he really does change? Your perspective on God really does change? you got to set your mind on him. You need to see God as he is. In Romans 11, 33 to 36, you want to see God as high. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, I talked about that track that plays in your head, that statement that somebody said about you that you really just can't let go of. You've got to replace it with this right here. How does God get bigger in your mind? By you realizing that he's higher than you. By meditating on this perfect picture of who he is as high and lifted up. Nehemiah had Isaiah 6. Go read Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is great. This is maybe shorter, but it's just as good. You got to see him as forgiving. If he's just holy, you're crushed by him. So you got to see him as forgiving. Another thing I would ask you to think about or maybe memorize one or two of, make a little card of and put it in your car, put it in your mirror, put it somewhere where you're going to see it regularly. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion toward those who fear him. You got to know that he's a forgiving God that you can come to. And you got to just keep telling yourself that. You just got to keep meditating on it. You got to remember that when things are good, and you got to remember that when things are real crummy. You got to remember that on Monday and you got to remember that on Tuesday. The only way to do that that I know of is to put these things, write them on the eyelids of your brain so that you're just seeing them constantly. You're meditating them on them regularly. Memorize them. You got to see them as loving. And this is one that maybe you've already memorized. It used to be really part of the kind of culture, but it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You are not accepted by God based on what you do. God says he loves you. He knows you and he loves you. And how do you know that? You just go back to the cross. If the cross happened, then God loves you because he gave his son for you. Brothers and sisters, if you will put this in your heart, then you'll start to see people through it. And you'll start to see people not as a means to the end of encouraging you or giving you some sort of a, an increased self-awareness or self-worth. You'll stop using people and you'll start seeing them as they are, as people to be loved. If you'll take your eyes off yourself for like 30 seconds and just look up at the high and holy God, then the fact that he loves you will be as earth-shaking and as life-sustaining as it should be. Yeah. We become a people that do this. We become a people whose anxiety gives way to praise, whose pride gives way to love, who are ready to abide and produce much fruit. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask for your grace to teach us these things. 
that you would become bigger and bigger in our hearts and in our heads, Lord, that you would become in our world what you are in the world, which is the God of all things, that your grandeur, that your height, that your holiness, that your love would transform our identities completely. And that being a people who are confident in the God who is God, we'd be able to stand before our art exerxes and be bold for your glory. Pray that we do this, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.